good morning again, everybody. It is great to see you all here this morning. So glad you could be with us. So we look into the Word of God this morning and just worship Him as a family of God. It's a really beautiful thing. And it's a, a privilege, honestly, that we can do this. It really is. And I'm so thankful that I get to do it with you guys in particular. But this morning, we're going to begin a new journey together. I hope you're ready for this. We're going to be in a new section of Scripture. Today, we start our study in the book of Acts. And so you may have heard it referred to as the Acts of the Apostles. And so this is really a follow-up, or you could say a sequel, or maybe a better way to say it is this is the continuation of Luke's gospel account of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what the book of Acts does is it gives us details on the birth and on the expansion of the church. And it's calling, by the way, to reach the world with the good news of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. So it's a fantastic book. It's an amazing book. I'm ready to get started with this thing, and I hope you are too. But the book of Acts, really, at its core, is a history book. Uh, Luke is a great historian, and he writes one of the best history books you're ever going to read. And by the way, it's the only Holy Spirit-wrought history book that you're going to find out there. And so it's a fantastic book, and it's all about how God began to evangelize the world through the power that he'd given his people. And I like what J. Vernon McGee said. He said it's almost like the four Gospels have been poured into a funnel, and they all come out into the first chapter of the book of Acts. And that's, that's true. Um, this book shows us the reality of ministry. It shows us the reality of of living a completely surrendered life to the Lord Jesus Christ, to live on mission for Christ. And so we're going to learn a lot, but we're going to be challenged a lot together as well as we travel through the pages of this book over the next several months. One of the things we're going to see is that sinners are going to be saved. We'll see that in the book of Acts. We're also going to see that saved people sin. That's another thing we're going to see. We're going to see that believers are going to actually disagree about stuff. They're going to confront one another, and some of them are even going to part company. Believers do that. Why? Well, it's because ministry can be very, very messy. That's the primary reason. And why is ministry messy? Well, because we are all messy. That's why. But ultimately, we're going to see Christ glorified in and through his church as the gospel begins to spread out all around the world. And so we're going to get a glimpse of our heritage here as we go through this book. We're going to get a glimpse of our calling as believers and how this mission, this calling is supposed to continue on until our Savior takes us home. And so as a young church plant ourselves, some 2,000 years now removed from the events of this book, we're going to have many lessons to learn along the way. A lot of things to learn for us as we study through the book of Acts, as we study the birth and the growth and the struggles and the victories, all of that that the early church went through. Some of it's going to sound familiar to us and other is going to be very challenging as well. Some of it's going to be quite encouraging as we look at the Holy Spirit empower his people for his purpose. And so I'm excited about the journey. I hope that you are as well as we look back at how it all began, as we look back at how Christ gave birth to his church. So let's pray and we'll get into the word. Thank you, Lord, again for this opportunity to gather here around your word, the very word of God, the Holy Spirit wrought scriptures. Lord, please enlighten us. Please give us understanding. Let us have ears to hear this morning as we turn through the pages of your history book and as we learn about how the church began. What are the expectations for us in light of how You birthed your church some 2,000 years ago. Help us to learn what it is you need us to learn, Lord. Help us to avoid what we need to avoid. And help us to walk by faith on this journey together. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 1. We're going to start off in verse 1. So Acts chapter 1, we're going to make it through, uh, Lord willing, verse 11 this morning. It begins like this. Acts chapter 1. Verse 1, the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, 
being seen by them during the 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Verse 4. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Verse 9. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Amazing stuff here. But I want to start by just giving you some background and hopefully a bit of an overview to the book of Acts before we just jump right into Luke's prologue in verse 1. When was it written? Um, well, Luke most likely wrote the book of Acts in the early 60s, sometime around or before A.D. 62. Why do we say that? Well, several reasons, actually. One of the reasons is that we say that is Luke, make, he makes no mention of the persecution that took place under the Roman emperor Caesar Nero that began in A.D. 64. Luke doesn't mention that. Luke also does not mention the war between uh, the Jews and Rome that began in A.D. 66. Neither does Luke mention Paul's death, which most believe happened around A.D. 68. Luke does not mention the destruction of Jerusalem, which took place in A.D. 70. And so you can see that an early 60s date seems to work best here for the writing of the book of Acts, especially since the apostle James is alive at this time and he's also written about in the book of Acts. And we know from first century historian, Jewish historian Josephus, that James died in A.D. 62. So on or before A.D. 62 would be a good time frame for the writing of this book. But Luke begins in Acts where he left off in his gospel. Remember, Jesus had told his disciples in Luke 24, 47, that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. In other words, he gave them what we know as the Great Commission. And the entirety of the book of Acts, I love this about the book of Acts, the entirety of the book of Acts is basically an outline of the early church fulfilling the Great Commission. For example, Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he said, You shall be my witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so the 28 chapters here in the book of Acts document very clearly the apostles' obedience to this commission from Christ. For example, chapters 1 through 7, it covers the gospel being spread in and around Jerusalem, which encompassed about two years of time. Then we get into chapters 8 through 12, and it covers the gospel getting into Judea and Samaria, covering about 13 years of time. And then lastly, we have chapters 13 through 28 that show the gospel beginning to get on out to the ends of the earth all throughout the Roman Empire. And this covers about 14 years of time. And so the entirety of the book of Acts gives us about 30 to 33-ish years of church history uh, from the beginning. In chapters 1 through 13, so the first half of the book, we see the church empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. And it makes a great deal of progress as it grows and expands all across the region. But the second half of the book, chapters 13 through 28, it's where we're introduced into the amazing ministry of the apostle Paul. But before that, God uses another apostle. He uses Peter, the one we just studied about, how he restored. God uses Peter to make an incredible impact on the culture of his day. And that takes place in chapters 1 through 8. And then in the middle chapters there, chapters 8 through 12, 
we see God use a man by the name of Philip to be his witness to Judea and Samaria, basically. And so what you have here are three primary witnesses that reach, that God uses to lead uh, the commission into the areas that he commanded them to go, right? Peter was God's primary witness to the Jews in Jerusalem. Philip was God's primary witness to the Samaritans in, in Judea and Samaria, for example. And then the apostle Paul is God's primary witness to the Gentiles, the one who went to the uttermost parts of the world. So again, the Great Commission from Christ is actually a very good outline for the book of Acts. And the book of Acts, the thing that's so important among many, but one of the things that's so important is that it really provides us with a historical bridge, so to speak, between the Gospels to the epistles or to the letters that were written to the churches. I mean, just imagine what it would be like if we didn't have the book of Acts in the Bible. If we didn't have this historical account, if all we had were the Gospels and then the letters to the churches, we'd be missing a lot. Like, who's this Apostle Paul guy, for example? There'd be so many questions. Of course, we would still have the foundation of our faith, but we would be left without the foundation of the church. So Acts is critical to that. And just like we see in Genesis, for example, we see physical creation in the book of Genesis. In the book of Acts, we see spiritual creation. In Genesis, we see the creation of life. In Acts, we see the creation of new life. William MacDonald said, the book of Acts is a bridge not only between the life of Christ and the Christ life that's taught in the epistles, but it's also a transitional link between Judaism and Christianity and between law and grace. Very well said, I agree. And it's the only, as I said, it's the only Holy Spirit-inspired book about church history that we have. It's the only one. And so just as Christ lived about 33 years on this earth, the book of Acts covers between 30 and 33 years thereabouts of his church after his ascension from the earth. Pretty cool. Luke uses great detail in his descriptions too, by the way. There are several skeptics I know about Christianity that are still out there, but Luke is detailed and Luke is a historian and he gives us many historical facts that are irrefutable. Like they are factual They've been verified by archaeological evidence over the years. For example, Luke mentions about 80 geographical locations in this book. He mentions over 100 different people by name with their titles, like council or tetrarch or governor or whatever. And all of these places and all of these people have been verified historically. The book of Acts focuses primarily on two Apostles. It focuses on Peter and Paul. But of course, its subject matter from front to back is all about the Lord Jesus Christ all throughout. Just like we read in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, where it says, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so Christ and his gospel are at the very center of the book of Acts throughout. And so many have said, you know what? The Acts of Apostles, it should have been called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And I'm thinking, you know, that's not a bad title, but I think the Lord got it right because what we see here is that the Holy Spirit of God is working in and through the people of God to accomplish the will of God. And so as the people of God move out in the power of the Holy Spirit that had been given to them into the culture around them with the message of God, guys, we're going to see as many as 24 different speeches in the book of Acts. Speeches or sermons or messages, 24. So 24 messages in 28 chapters. What does that tell us? Well, it tells me that I should be able to learn something about how to convey the message of Christ to the world. I can do it the way the apostles did it. Because the book of Acts, I don't know if you know this or not, but the book of Acts doesn't really have a proper ending. Uh, and I'm not saying the Holy Spirit messed it up. Like it's exactly the way he intended it. But it's not, it doesn't end in the way you would think it would end or that it should end based on our own standards. What I mean is this, it ends with the apostle Paul still in prison awaiting trial in Rome. That's how the entire book ends, right? And it ends this way because we, you and I, us, community church, 
are to continue where the book of Acts left off. That's why it ends the way that it does. We are to continue the message into our community. We are continue to continue to take the message of Christ into the world. That's why there's no proper ending because it'll end when Christ comes and takes his church home. We're reading about the beginning of the church, but we continue to be the church until Christ takes us home. So here we go with the prologue in verse one. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. So this former account here that he mentions is the gospel of Luke. That's what he's referencing. And this is one of the hints that Luke is the author of both books, okay, the, the book of Acts and the Gospel of Luke, because he references here the former account, and, the, and both were addressed to the same person. They were both addressed to Theophilus. So who was Theophilus? Well, we're not sure. I'll get to that in a minute, but Theophilus, his name means lover of God. And some people have tried to over-spiritualize this and say, well, Luke's just writing to whoever is a lover of God. Well, I think there's application there, but I don't think that that's the the correct interpretation of the text. There was a guy named Theophilus that got this book and got this letter, but it's applicable to all of us who love God, right? Again, we don't know who Theophilus was, but based on his name, I think we get an idea of what he was like. Surely he was a lover of God. Surely he was. That's what his name means. And when you think about that, you think, man, This guy got two books of scripture written to him. His name means lover of God. What a legacy. What a legacy that is. I mean, to be known and remembered throughout history as a lover of God. Man, if you're looking for a life goal, that's a good one right there. That's a good one. That would be a good good thing to have on your tombstone, right? Just lover of God. Just point people to Jesus. Luke already told Theophilus in his former account, all that Christ had began to do and to teach. Okay, so the work that Christ began. And so now Luke is preparing to explain the work that Christ continued to do and will continue to do through the life of his disciples and eventually on down to you and me as well. Because Christ is now commanding his church. He is now leading his church, if you will, through his spirit as he sits in complete authority over his creation at the right hand of his father. And it's important to know, this is very important that we know that God is still alive and at work in his people and at work in this world. Our triune God is still at work within his creation, both doing and teaching. We should never forget that. So here's our first lesson. You and I, We're to be doers of the word, aren't we? Not just hearers only. James said that in James chapter 1, verse 22. Christ himself was both a teacher and a doer. And so that's our model. Christ is our model. He taught and he done. And so community church, we we based our vision statement around that teaching. Because here's, here's what it says. I'll just read it again to you. We talked about it last week, but it's worth repeating. Community church, we hope to be the church. That's what we hope. We hope we can be, not just attend church, not just come to church. No, we are the church. We must be the church. We hope to win souls to Christ and to disciple them to maturity in Christ. You've heard me say before, we hope to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. We don't only want to evangelize people. We also want to disciple them to maturity in Christ. We want to do both. We hope to worship Christ wholeheartedly and teach his word unapologetically using the Bible. This book is our only source for our belief and for our behavior. In other words, to say it very succinctly, we want to teach and do. We want to be doers as well as teachers. Why? Because a right doctrine will necessitate right duty. Therefore, in order to counteract the culture around us, and can we even say the cultural Christianity around us of our day, then we must practice what we preach. Verse 2. Until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. So Christ was taken up. This is in regard to the ascension of Christ. Christ ascended back to the Father. But what were the commandments? We talked about some of them last week. Christ had given them the Great Commission. That's also a commandment. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. We know 
that before his crucifixion, he had given them the great commandment. In Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 through 40. Again, those two passages we base everything we do on here at Community Church. The great commandment and the great commission. It should all flow out of that. But look at how Christ gave these commandments. Did you see it right there in verse 2? Through the Holy Spirit. He was still with them. Yet he communicated through his spirit. And so I think this tells us a couple of things. One, that these men were regenerate, regenerate rather. In other words, they had already been born again. When were they born again? Well, after they received the Holy Spirit, when Christ breathed on them over in John 20, verse 22. That's the first thing we learn. The second thing we learn is that over the course of the 40 days that Christ remained on earth, post-resurrection from the dead, he remained with his disciples. And he reminded them of his commands, but he did it in a very interesting way. He did it through the Holy Spirit he had given them. In other words, they were now walking with Christ, yes, but in his spirit and by his spirit. Very different. And so this provides the foundation here for our mission as a New Testament church. What is that? It's to obey the commandments and commission of Christ. That's the mission of Community Church. And we hope to do that as we listen to and as we walk in his Holy Spirit, as we are guided by his holy word. Verse 3, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So Luke is again documenting for us the resurrection of Jesus Christ after his crucifixion. And he does so by many infallible proofs. That word infallible, it means unmistakable. That's what the word means. It means there's no possibility of doubt. This happened by infallible proof, right? So Christ had appeared to his disciples at least 10 times, as you read through the Gospels, and, and probably more. But he, he appeared at least 10 times post-resurrection to them. And during that time, he spoke about things that pertained to the kingdom of God. Now, we're not sure exactly what Christ was teaching them here about the kingdom, but generally, it would seem that he was teaching them about the Christ life, the Christ life. In other words, how things are to be done in his kingdom or how things will be done in his kingdom. You and I, we tend to concern ourselves with the kingdoms of this world, don't we? We get concerned with other kingdoms, but not Jesus. He concerned himself with the kingdom of God. I want to be clear here. Um, Jesus was not speaking to them about the church. Okay, this is not the church. The church is not to be confused with the kingdom of God here. Christ was speaking to his disciples about his literal kingdom on earth. Okay, and that's going to take place when Israel is finally restored after they have repented and received Christ as their Messiah. Acts chapter 3, verse 21. So the kingdom in its current form, okay, so keep that order in your mind. Christ is telling them about their future kingdom, the time when he comes to earth to rule and reign. But the kingdom we live in now, the kingdom in its current form, is described for us in the parables of Matthew 13. Okay, so you can read that. It's the parable of the sower. It's the parable of the wheat and the tares, the parable of the dragnet, and so on. In other words, the church exists today alongside unbelievers, alongside an unbelieving world, right? The wheat and the tares grow up together. There's different kinds of soil that the seed of the gospel falls on, etc. That's the kingdom we live in now in its current form, the church. But at the end of the age, Christ will return and he will return with his church, which consists of, you wonder, what's the church? Well, the church, it simply consists of all those who have believed on Jesus Christ by faith and were saved from the time of Pentecost until the time of the rapture. That's the church, okay? And so we, the church, are going to come back with Christ to rule and to reign for a thousand years literally on this earth after Christ has destroyed his enemies and restored his people Israel and he's reigning from the capital city of Jerusalem. That's the kingdom he's referring to here. Verse 4. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. 
That's right. The promise of the Father, as spoken by the Son, was the promise of God the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the promise, right? He would be sent to and received. Notice this. The Holy Spirit would be sent to and received in the very same city where Christ was rejected and crucified. He would be sent to the same city where the disciples got scared and fled. The Holy Spirit was coming to the very same city where Christ will one day return and rule and reign. And so the Holy Spirit's testimony regarding the truth of Christ will begin and end in the same city. I find that fascinating. One of the things we see here is that what the world tends to reject, Christ restores, Christ renews. What the world destroys, Christ rebuilds. He remakes, doesn't he? The Jews, for example, they rejected Christ where? In Jerusalem. Christ is going to one day restore them. Jerusalem was utterly destroyed in AD 70 by the Romans, along with the temple, by the way. And Christ is going to return one day and restore this city back to its rightful place. And soon, even before its destruction, Christianity is about to explode from this very same city. Again, Christ restores Christ renews. But for 10 days, his apostles are going to have to wait. Christ walked the earth for 40 days post-resurrection. But Pentecost didn't happen until the 50th day. And so there were 10 days where they were just going to have to wait and be patient and be obedient to what the Lord had commanded them to do. Because Christ knew, I think, that it was better for these men to just go and sit and wait and do nothing for the next week and a half than to try to go out and do anything in their own strength whatsoever. They had not yet been empowered by the promise, the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit of God, which was now, by the way, the promise of the Son. And so for 10 days, they would have to sit and wait for the promise to be fulfilled. But check this out. When it is fulfilled, when they receive this promise from God the Son, Jesus Christ, which is God the Holy Spirit, when they receive that, it's going to change the rest of their lives. It will completely change them forever. So what can we learn? Well, I think the first thing is that, yes, wait on the Lord, believer. Maybe the Lord has you in a holding pattern. Maybe he's asking you to wait If that's true, wait. Let patience have its perfect work, right? But when the Holy Spirit empowers you, go, right? Don't wait. You go and you never look back. Be on mission for God. That's what these guys did. They got on mission for God immediately and they never looked back. Their lives were completely changed forever. Verse five, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Right, so John, his baptism, he's talking about John the Baptist, okay? So his baptism was a water baptism, and it was one of repentance, Luke chapter 3, verse 3. But Christ's baptism is a spirit baptism. It's one of regeneration, John 1, 33. And so the former was a type of the latter, you could say. John's baptism was a type of the baptism to come from Christ. But remember, The disciples had already received the Holy Spirit of God when Christ breathed on them. John 20, verse 22. Therefore, they had already been regenerated, as it were, right, by the Spirit of God, which tells us, I think, that the next work of the Holy Spirit, the baptism, if you will, is not going to be one of salvation or regeneration, but of power, empowerment. The Holy Spirit will baptize them, so to speak. It will fill them. He will empower them for ministry. This is important. Jesus said in Luke 24, 49, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with what? Power from on high. And so the Holy Spirit of God renews us. Yes, he regenerates our soul. Yes, when? When we receive him. By faith, that's justification. That's at the moment we are made right before a holy God by the blood of Jesus Christ. But the Holy Spirit also empowers us. You could say baptizes us. When? When we obey him. 
These guys were being obedient. They were following the words of Christ. They did what they were supposed to do. And the Holy Spirit comes and empowers them. This is what we know as sanctification. This is the second part of our salvation, right? There's three aspects to it. The time when we are born again, made right before a holy God by grace through faith. And this is the time of sanctification, which starts at the moment we are born again and goes all the way until we breathe our last breath. That's the process whereby God continues to make us into the likeness of Christ. That's the second aspect of our salvation. The third aspect is glorification. That's when we awaken his likeness, right? We won't see that this side of heaven. And so we are in process. And here's the beginning of the process through the power of the Holy Spirit given to the men and women of God. Verse six, therefore, when they had come together, they asked him saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Again, the, the disciples were thinking that the kingdom of Israel was you know, about to be set up soon. Like El Quico, they were thinking, like, if not today, then maybe tomorrow. That's how soon they were, they were thinking it's going to be set up. Just in a few days. But notice, Christ did not rebuke their question, did he? It was a legitimate question that they were asking. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of Israel here, they're both referencing the same kingdom, okay? But what the disciples needed, more than national restoration, was that's what they had in mind. Are you going to restore us nationally? Lord, when is that going to happen? What these guys needed more than that was spiritual empowerment to go on mission. And so the disciples are learning here. I mean, they asked this question with the knowledge that they had at the time. Okay, so it was an honest question. But check this out. When they meet together again at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, Things are, are different. They've learned a few things. Listen to what it says. Acts chapter 15, starting in verse 14, says, and Luke's quoting here the apostle James, by the way, who's, who's speaking. Verse 14, Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the apostles, or excuse me, the words of the prophets agree just as it is written. I love this because what you see is these guys, these brothers are now checking what Simon is saying against the word of God to see if it's true. And it is. They said it's just exactly what the prophets said it is. And what is it? Verse 16. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind, the rest of the world, may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does these things. This is really fascinating because the kingdom of Israel will not be restored until when? Until the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. Right? As Paul tells us in Romans chapter 11, verse 25. And therefore today, right now, you and I live in what we call the church age. Again, all believers consisting from the time of Pentecost to the rapture. We live in the church age. And what is God doing during this church age, this period of time that we live in? Well, he's taking out a people for his name. Where? From among the Gentiles. That's what he's doing. That's Acts 15, 14. He's taking out all those who believe the gospel, who are called by his name, Acts 15, 17. And I'm telling you, this is like old news for us, but for these guys here in the first century, this was breaking news. This was breaking news to them. These guys were Jewish. <laughs> they were Jewish apostles of Christ who were in the process of learning the full meaning of the new covenant. And they'll get it. But right now, where we're at in the text, they're still figuring this stuff out. Verse 7. And he said to them, It's not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Yeah, Israel's going to be restored 100%. But in the time and in the season which God the Father has put into his own authority. Again, this is speaking in direct reference to the nation of Israel, not the church. But the application is everywhere. There is a, there's an abundance of super relevant application for the church here as well. Because think about that. How much time do we waste 
wondering when God is going to do something rather than working on what I'm supposed to be doing until he does that thing, right? Israel done it with the kingdom. The church does it with the rapture. We see it all the time. We hear it all the time, don't we? Lord, when are you going to do this? Lord, when are you going to return? When this? When that? When are you coming? That's a primary question that even the church asks today. And I don't know. Maybe it's because of our own laziness in serving Christ or not wanting to serve Christ. Maybe it's our own selfishness and how we want to just serve ourselves that compels us to always concern ourselves with times and seasons. You know, those things that are under God's control, not ours. I don't know. But look at Peter. Peter was concerned about what Christ was going to do with John. We looked at this briefly when we looked at John 21. But Peter is like, you know, hey, Jesus, what are you going to do about John? And and Jesus told Peter very matter of factly in John chapter 21, verse 22. He says, if I will, he's talking to Peter, if I will that he remain until I come, what's that to you? What did Jesus tell Peter? None your business. Right? That's none your business at all. You follow me. Peter was wondering about when, when, what? No, no, no. You, Peter, you follow me. You worry about what you're supposed to be doing. I'll worry about the rest of it. See, we don't know when Christ is coming back. We don't know that. But we do know what we are supposed to be doing until he comes. So even if it's our excitement over the return of Christ, which is not a bad thing, okay, we should be excited. Maybe it's our excitement that causes us to be consumed with the when. I don't know. But we have got to learn how to temper that excitement so that even our excitement for the Lord's return does not become a distraction for what we are supposed to be doing today. At least temper it to the point where we can focus on the what, on the obedience to our Lord today. Guys, we don't want our excitement for the future to make us ineffective in the present. That's what I'm saying. Prophecy is important. It's vital. I love prophecy. It's great. But we have not been given all the pieces to that puzzle. Okay, we haven't. We do, however, have a very crystal clear picture of our own purpose in the present time. We know all about that. And so Christ reminds his men of their current mission. Look at verse 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Guys, this right here is the key chapter to the entire book of Acts. I'm sure we'll reference it often, but this is the key verse. I said chapter, it's the key verse. Acts chapter one, verse eight is the key verse to the entire book. And it is the call of every disciple of Christ which is to be his witness to the world. Where? To Jerusalem, the very place that Christ was rejected in Luke 23. Where? To Judea, to the very place that the will of God was rejected in Luke 7. To Samaria, to the very place where the Jews rejected them. The Jews rejected the Samaritans. The Jews called those people half-breeds. They didn't get along because of their ethnicity. That's not good. Right? But we're to be witnesses there. We are to be witnesses to the end of the earth. In other words, to the Gentiles as well. The people that the, the Jews referred to as dogs. That's what they called Gentiles. So the gospel of Christ is to be preached everywhere, to every race, to every color, to every creed, all throughout the world, to the ends of the world. And guys, this is only going to be accomplished by the Holy Spirit of God within us and upon us. What's the difference? The Holy Spirit within us is regeneration. That's salvation. We must be born again. That's what Jesus said. So the Holy Spirit must be within us. And when he is, as Paul tells us in Galatians, that the Father has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That's how we're born again. The Spirit of God regenerating our soul. He must be within us, but he also must be upon us. Right? Empowering us to serve, empowering us to witness and to go and to baptize and to teach and so on. And so I have to realize that I can do absolutely nothing apart from the Holy Spirit of God, both in me and upon me. I can do nothing. No amount of my talent, 
No amount of my training, no amount of my hard work, my hard work or even my striking good looks, none of that is going to make any difference whatsoever. It will never accomplish anything worthwhile or of eternal cause without the power of the Spirit. The Spirit must be in me and upon me. This is a work of God. I'm absolutely powerless in my own ability. I'm powerless in my own efforts and in my own strength. So let's learn how to, to depend upon the Holy Spirit of God. I've got to ask myself a question at the outset of our journey through the book of Acts. And here's the question that I need to ask myself. How have I been a witness to Christ? What does that look like? Because it's not a question of, can I go? The question is, have I gone? It's not, yeah, Jesus sounds like a good plan. If there's time left, I'd, I'd love to help you out with that. No, not if you're a believer. It's not, can I go? It's, have I gone? Have I gone to my family and witnessed Christ to them? Have I gone to my friends, to my city, my Jerusalem? Have I been there as a witness to Christ? Have I gone to my county or my, my country, you could say? Have I gone outside of the city limits, in other words, to Judea and Samaria as a witness of Christ? And have I done so in the power of his spirit? It's critical. You see, if I go to Judea and Samaria, if that, that means that I have to go to people I don't like. That means I have to go places I don't like. It means I have to be in situations where I'm around people that I don't necessarily get along with, right? Remember, the Jews and Samaritans did not get along at all. But what did Jesus say? He said, go, go there. Be my witness to the people you don't even necessarily like. Why? Because I do. I love them. And I've given my life for them. Therefore, I'm commanding you to go. So how far have I gone in my witness to the Lord Jesus Christ? I've got to get honest before the Lord here. Everybody has a job. Everybody has responsibilities. And so, obviously, everybody cannot be a foreign missionary. Right? But there's many ways we can do this. One is to, yeah, surrender everything, sell everything you have, and move to the mission field. That's actually still a possibility. I don't know if you knew that. But we can forsake all and follow Jesus. We can say no to the things of this world, cash out and move to a foreign country and tell everybody we see about Christ. We can do that. We can support a missionary financially, prayerfully, we can get involved with things like Operation Christmas Child that will take the gospel around the world. I'm so thankful our church was able to do that this year. That's how we can get to the ends of the earth. But how can we do it locally? How can we be a witness to Christ? Well, we can serve in the church. We can use whatever gifting or talent or ability or resource we have in the service to the local body to edify our brothers and sisters within the local church. We can also support a local gospel-centered nonprofit like Manna and More, or there are many, right? We can actually do something crazy. Maybe you've heard of people doing this before, actually sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with somebody personally. We can do that. That's one of the ways we can be a witness to Christ. But Christ has called me to this personally. He's called you to this personally. This is my commission. That's how I have to look. And we're not talking about something that's antiquated. We're talking about something that is continuing on. This is the mission of Christ. And I'm a part of that if I am in Christ, if I belong to him. So this is my responsibility as a believer and follower of Christ. So how am I doing with that? How am I doing with that? I know this. Likely I'm not doing very well if I'm trying to do all of this in my own power. I'm going to blow it big time. I'm likely not doing very well at this if I try to do all of this at my own leisure. Mm -mm. Why? Because my power, my power is shy. My power is selfish. I want to do things for me. My power, it's weak. It's lazy and fully powerless to do the will of God whatsoever as I should. So, have I received power from on high? Has the Holy Spirit come up on me? In other words, am I right now, this morning, walking in and living by 
the power of God, the Holy Spirit's power within me. Am I doing that? Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's John 14, 15. And through my obedience is when his power will come, right? I don't have the privilege of passing off on this responsibility. I don't have the privilege of depending on somebody else to do my job for me. Christ has called me to do this. And so do you want power from on high? Do you want the Holy Spirit to empower you for ministry? Then walk in obedience. That's what we see here. Now, maybe you don't know Jesus. That's one thing. We're not talking about work salvation. If you want to know Jesus, all you have to do is turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ alone by faith, and he will save you. That will be the Holy Spirit within you. But the Holy Spirit upon you comes out through your obedience to the word of God. Walk in obedience to the word of God, and you will have the power of the Holy Spirit upon you. Verse 9. Now, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. So I love this because now there's eyewitness accounts to the death of Christ, John 19, 33. There's eyewitness accounts to the resurrection of Christ all over the place, particularly 1 Corinthians 15, 5 through 8. And now there's eyewitness accounts to the ascension of Christ right here in verse 9, which makes all those who reject Christ a rejecter of reality. This happened. Eyewitness accounts prove it, right? Christ is going to one day visibly return to the earth in the same way that he ascended from it, the way that people saw it. They witnessed it. Notice something here. Can you imagine? Luca's writing so simply. Luca's writing so directly here. I just love that. He, what is he doing? He's stating the facts. That's all Luca's doing. He's just giving us the facts. Guys, Christianity is not about all the bells and the whistles. It's not about all of this fascination with the extraordinary. No. What's Christianity about? The facts. Christianity is about the facts. Luke is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, who, by the way, so often gets blamed for many of the goofy and extravagant things out there that fall completely out of line with the scriptures. Luke simply just says, here's what happened. These are the facts without any measure of embellishment whatsoever. So believer, we need to understand something here. We need to learn something here. The truth has no need for embellishment. The truth does not need to be embellishment, embellished. It just needs to be proclaimed. That's it. And that's what Luke is doing. He's just proclaiming it. Imagine how, I, I imagine how I would have written that, Right? Oh, the Lord, we were all there and just blah, blah, blah. No, we would have got pretty extravagant with it. Luke just tells us the facts. This is what happened because it actually happened, right? Luke was an eyewitness to many of the events in the book of Acts. When we get to uh, chapter 16 in a few years, uh, he's going to start using the plural pronoun we. And so that's how we know that he's going to be and I witnessed. Luke was there. Christianity, guys, is historically factual. That's my point. Verse 10. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. So who were these men that were standing there by the disciples as Christ ascended? Were they angels? Um, we know that's possibility. We, we learn that from Judges chapter 13, verse 6. We learn it from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, among other passages of Scripture. They could be angels, but could they be the same angels that stood at Christ's tomb in Luke 24, verse 4? I don't know. I don't have any idea. But I personally think they were angels, but I can't verify that exactly. Verse 11. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up, taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Right. So the apostles, for good reason, were evidently just standing there gazing up into heaven like any of us would have been doing, right? Christ is just ascending into his glory right in front of us. And so we're all going to be just like, whoa, you know, what's going on here? But here's the truth. Again, here's the facts as they're laid out for us in the book of Acts. The time for gazing was over. That time had come to an end, hadn't it? And so these angels are these two men. In other words, they were like, look, y'all, Christ has returned to his glory, okay? 
And he's given you a commandment and he's given you a commission. So why are y'all still standing there looking up into heaven? You got work to do. You got stuff to do. Jesus has told y'all to do some things, so it's time to go do it. Go to Jerusalem and wait there until the promise of the Lord has come, the Holy Spirit. And then you got to go to work after that. You need to spend the rest of your entire life witnessing for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it's time for. The time for gazing is over. The time for witnessing has now begun. There is a time to wonder. There's a time to worship. There's a time to weep and so on. We get that. But right now, y'all, is the time to witness. That's what time it is. I want you to notice the encouragement here. Don't miss the encouragement. The angels, these two men, they're saying, look, he will be back. He's coming back. So take heart. He's not going to stay gone forever. Let that be your encouragement. Let that be your motivation. Of course, these guys were returning. The, the angels were referring to the second coming of Christ Jesus, his second advent, if you will, which is going to take place after a seven year long tribulation in the world. And so as his church, here's what I believe. We have seven years less than that. Seven years less than that before he calls us home, before he catches us away in rapture to meet him in the clouds. But then Christ will return. In a time and in a season of the Father's choosing, whether it's the rapture or whether it's his second coming, God knows. That's his time. That's his season. Therefore, we don't have to worry about that kind of stuff, right? That's above our pay grade. We don't have to worry about that. We just have to figure out what we are supposed to be doing now. We spend so much time and we waste so much time worrying about the timeline of how things are going to turn out when we should be worrying about what am I going to do today with my time? That's what we should be worrying about. What am I going to do with my talent? What am I going to do with the gifts and the resources that God has given me? What am I going to do with the power of the Holy Spirit within me and upon me to witness to the world around me? Jesus did not say, guys, you should spend all your time looking for me. That's not what he said. Should we be looking forward to Christ's return? Absolutely, 100%. Titus chapter 2, verse 13. Look forward to that. Look forward to that time. Not always be out there looking for it. Not checking the headlines every five minutes to see if Christ is going to come back. I hope he does. I pray that he does. And yes, I do believe we are in the end times. But I can't afford to spend all of my time trying to figure that out. There's work to do. There's stuff that God has called me to be doing. So I look forward to his return, but I've got work to do. What does my life tell the world around me? How's my witness? Does my life testify to the weakness of my flesh or to my half-hearted obedience? Or does it testify to the crucified life, the surrendered life that lives in the power of the Holy Spirit? Is my life a witness to Christ? One last thing, and we're almost done. The great R. Kent Hughes once told a story about a man who said, you know, I've been a deacon in my church for years. I was a deacon there for a long time. I built a church building even. That's how long I was a deacon. That's how good of a deacon I was. We built a church building. We raised money all over the place. I served on committees. But one thing my church never gave me was a relationship with Christ that would make my life exciting. Mm. Does that sound familiar? Can I tell you this morning, guys, that churches that do not teach the whole counsel of God, the entirety of the word of God, that do not both teach and do, those are the churches that are bland, that are boring, and frankly, good for nothing. Those churches need to die. I can't say it any more plain than that. Why? Because there's work to do. and Somebody's got to do it. And if they're not willing to do it, then they need to get out of the way and let another church do it. Because the surrendered life, guys, the crucified life, that's the exciting life. That's where you're going to find your excitement. Walking by faith in the power of the Holy Spirit. Guys, there is no other way for a Christian to live. That's it. Not according to the Bible. This is the only way. So if I want to make my life count for something, then I have to stop 
and get out of this self-absorbed culture around me. I've got to remove myself from that and step into the life that Christ has called me to live. Guys, the modern church, by and large, not all, but many have become irrelevant. Why? Because they live for themselves. That's why they're irrelevant. They don't live in the power of the Holy Spirit of God. Can I tell you, please hear this. Community church does not have time for that. We do not have time for that. Christ has commanded us to go. He's commanded us to love others, to love him. He's commissioned us to go into all the world, to baptize believers, to teach them, to observe all things that he has commanded us to do. But he's promised to be with us. He's promised to go with us every step of the way, even to the end of the age. So let's do that. Let's do that. Let's be a church that resembles the early church, the one that Christ brought to life, right? The one that he sent on mission by the power of his spirit. And he said, listen, these were Christ's final words on earth before he was ascended back to the Father. Here's what he said in his final words. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now listen, this was not said as a command, okay? Christ said this as a matter of fact. He's stating the facts. In other words, because this is the natural outflow. This is the natural result of a Christian who is filled with the Holy Spirit of God. That's what they look like. That's what they do. That's how they behave. That's who they are. They will be witnesses to Christ. That's what Jesus said. So let's go, right? Let's be those kind of Christians. Let's do those kind of things. And let's be that kind of church. Am I a witness to the Lord Jesus Christ? We love you, Lord, and thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for the challenge that you've put before us today. Thank you for the truth that lasts throughout eternity that will never change. Thank you for the mission that you've sent us on as a body of believers, until you return to take us home. We don't know any better than the disciples did when that's going to be. But we know you're coming. And we can't wait for that, Lord. But we've got work to do. We've got work that you have sent us to do. We have a mission to accomplish. So would you empower us, Lord, to do this work for your glory? Lord, can we please count everything as loss to the glory of Christ. Can we forsake all and follow you? Lord, would you call missionaries out of this church and send them all over the world to preach the good news of Jesus Christ? Would you use us to plant other churches locally, regionally, and globally for your glory? Lord, would you set our hearts on fire for the rest of our life to never look back and be on witness for Christ, no more turning back? Please help us to do that, Father. Help us to not miss the opportunity you've given to us, Lord. Our life will be completely wasted if we do. And we don't want to waste our life. We want to live it for you. The only exciting life, the only exciting life is to live it sold out for Jesus Christ. To walk by faith every step of the way trusting in your provisions because we know you will provide all of our needs according to your riches and glory. We know that. What are we waiting for? Lord, forgive my laziness. Forgive my apprehension. Forgive my lack of courage. Help me to get on mission and stay on mission the Lord Jesus Christ. Please use us however you see fit, Lord. We do it with gladness and a full heart full of thanksgiving for all that you've done and all that you're going to do. My prayer is that if somebody heard this message and does not have a relationship with you, that that would change right now. That they would turn from their sin right now and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ by faith alone believing that he is the son of God who died on the cross for their sins and rose again so that they could have eternal hope in him. If that's you, would you believe that? 
and be saved this morning. For the rest of us who have the Holy Spirit within us, let's pray for the Holy Spirit upon us to empower us for the work of Christ for the rest of our life. We love you, Jesus. We want to live for you, Jesus. Empower us to do that, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.